I would watch this Jeffrey Dahmer series and learn a little <laughs> bit more about what kind of punishing things I should be doing. Oh, boy. I mean, what would you do if I did that to oh, you? Oh, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, that's, that's it. <laughs> it's a Jeffrey Dahmer approach. Welcome to Pennies and Popcorn, the show about real money lessons from the world of TV and movies. With your hosts, Carla Cash and Robert Davidson, a couple of personal finance geeks and movie lovers. Hello, hello, everybody. Welcome to a major throwback episode of Pennies and Popcorn. Uh, Carla, I don't think this is going to be a throwback. Throwback <laughs> means it is a reference to something in the past, and I don't think anybody's seen this episode. Yeah, that's true. This is going to be an interesting episode. We fully recognize that we are covering a movie today that probably like 1% of people alive today have seen. Maybe that's a little unfair. Maybe I do think this was a pretty popular movie when it came out in 1985, which is pushing 40 years ago now. So it's been a hot second since this film came out. And I like had never heard of it, but we kind of stumbled across it. I think maybe my parents introduced this to us. And it is just a absolutely perfect look at the idea of financial independence and since we're a big part of the FI community here and, you know, think a lot about the concept of financial independence, this movie is just a fantastic jumping off point to talk about a lot of really fascinating things. That's right. We're going to be doing Lost in America. I don't think we said that this far. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Lost in America from 1985. This film is kind of poking fun at the idea of financial independence in some ways. I think it's just the idea of stepping away from normal society. It's making fun of the way that a yuppie might approach the problem. Yeah, that sounds about right. In fact, the movie poster, which you'll see if you go on like IMDb or Google it, is a picture of the couple with their he their heads stuck in the sand, kind of like that stereotypical image of an ostrich, even though I don't think ostriches actually do that in real life. But anyway, I think that kind of tells you that this movie is sort of a little bit poking fun at the idea of the way that these people in particular approach the concept of financial independence. Well, it felt like the right time to do the movie. If you caught last week's episode on This Is 40, we talked a lot about Albert Brooks, you know, the guy who voices the dad in Finding Nemo. Mm -hmm. And this is a movie that he wrote and directed and starred in. Yeah. This is very much his baby. In fact, I did see that he was actually not planning to star in it. He wanted Bill Murray for the role. But Bill Murray is a popular guy even was, today. Was he busy busting ghosts or something? <laughs> he was doing something back in 1985. So they couldn't pin Bill Murray down. And Albert Brooks was like, forget it. I really want to make this movie. I'm just going to play the role myself. Okay. Well, I think he did a great job. Yeah. I think both the, the lead stars in this movie do a really great job. The female lead is played by Julie Haggerty, um, who I think is maybe best known for playing um, one of the main characters in the movie Airplane, which I haven't seen in gosh knows how long. But um, she has some comedic chops, which we get to see on display in this film. She's also been in a couple of, I mean, lots of other things. She's had a very, very successful career. More recently, you might remember her from things like Marriage Story, where she had 
kind of a minor role. You're not helping her case. <laughs> she was in an episode of Grace and Frankie, I think. That was a more popular show. Was she recognizable as the same lady in this movie? Yeah, actually, she aged super well. I oh, saw her okay. picture and I was like, man, I hope I get that lucky. So yeah, she's she's uh, doing something right. Got a picture in the attic somewhere. Um, so do you want to kind of set up the basic plot of this film for us? Yeah, so it's about this couple, David and Linda. They live in the greater Los Angeles area. David is an advertising executive, and Linda is some sort of assistant manager or something like that for uh, a mall or some sort of department store. She, yeah. she seems to work um, in the back office for some sort of retail business. And they are on the treadmill of life, right? They are moving forward. They have just bought a brand new home or put down a down payment on it. They're excited to move there or sort of excited about it. They're a little bit unsure. They're kind of nervous about it all. Um, David is expecting a big promotion at work. He is looking at the newest BMW. and Mercedes, is, Robert, get it right. Is there a difference? I really don't know. <laughs> Sorry, car people. Mm -hmm. You're right. It wasn't Mercedes that he was super excited about. He was eyeing the different outside colors and the inside trim packages and, you know, the leather or whatever the artificial non-leather thing was they offered in the movie. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> super excited about these possessions and, you know, the, the status symbols they had in their lives, uh, but also kind of unhappy at the same time. Yeah, they seem to have this sort of undercurrent throughout their relationship at the beginning of the film that they're both just kind of wanting something different. I think Linda goes to look at their brand new house and spends some time there on her own and sort of looks around and has kind of a, is this all there is sort of moment. Beautiful house, but this is all we get in life. Like that's, that's it folks. Yeah. So they're struggling with sort of a suburban malaise, I think you could say. Yeah, I think that's a fair characterization. Well, David is expecting this big promotion at work. Uh, he's expecting to be made like senior vice president or something. And it doesn't quite work out the way that he wanted. And we're going to play our first clip where we uh, hear how David shares this message with Linda. Quit. What? Quit your job. Oh, I quit my job. I did. You do it. You quit your job? Well, I didn't really quit, but I got fired, but it was the same thing. Linda, you were right. No more responsible, David. I'm free. I was responsibly blind, honey. I was a dead man. Well, I would have never used that word if I knew you were going to take it so literally. I didn't mean anything by it. I'm giving you credit for saving my life. But it was just a word. Linda, they were jacking me off. Shh. They were jacking me off. I was on the road to nowhere. Do you know the road? No. It's a nowhere road. It goes nowhere. You're on it. You don't know it? It's a nowhere road. It just goes around in a circle. It's the carrot on the stick and the watch when you're 70. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I think he's underselling what happened there. He didn't, like, just get fired. He blew up. Like, he was livid about not getting his promotion that he was so certain he was due. Yeah, he went out in a blaze of glory. <laughs> that is for sure. He ranted and raved about how he was owed this position and... He just couldn't believe that they were going to give it to this other guy, and he just let his boss have it. Yeah. I don't really recommend that. I mean, teach their own. It makes for a good story, I suppose. But <laughs> maybe maybe think a little bit more carefully about what you're going to do. The idea of quitting on the fly when just an hour before that you were on the phone with the Mercedes dealer trying to figure out like which exact model you were going to go pick up. 
doesn't seem like the best planning. Yeah, he uh, he sure turns on a dime, doesn't he? I mean, one minute he's like this close to pulling the trigger on buying what he tells us in the movie is a $44,000 car. And then the next minute he's like, screw it, let's leave everything behind. Let's both quit our jobs and go, you know, try to find ourselves and drop out of society. Well, Carla, he's on a nowhere road. Yeah, apparently. Um, what, what does that mean? What does that mean to you? I think that's such a fascinating question because I think a lot of people, especially in the FI community, that clip probably really resonates with them, right? They feel that way that just working these big corporate jobs and doing nothing but bringing in bringing down this big paycheck is not getting them anything valuable in life. Sure, they have nice things and they get to eat at nice restaurants, but they don't really feel like they're making the most out of their precious time here on earth. So I very much sympathize with that line of thinking, but I also think he's kind of kidding himself if he thinks there are roads in life that are not, quote, nowhere roads. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's what I want to talk about. Like, what isn't a nowhere road? Like, where, I, I mean, I'm sure we could ask ourselves what the meaning of life is and have an interesting conversation <laughs> about that. But really, is anyone going anywhere in particular, right? We're all just moving on from one thing to the next thing and uh, hopefully trying to make the best of it. But and eventually we end up six feet under. So <laughs> we're all going in the same place as best I, I, we can tell. I'm just trying to think like super successful business moguls. Like, don't they also feel like, what am I doing this for? What about like a star athlete? You won the MVP. You won the championship. You got that next new contract. You got the endorsement deal. So what? Like you still yeah. got to get up and live life the next day or in a decade like, at some point. Unless you have accomplished something that feels engaging and fulfilling, you probably still feel like you're on this nowhere road and feel a little bit empty. Yeah, I think it's all about enjoying the road that you're on instead of feeling like your road leads you to some particular destination. Because like we said, ultimately we're all headed to the same destination where we're not going to be aware of anything, we're not going to remember anything, is, again, as best anybody can tell. So... Linda, before this clip where she she hears David say that he quit and wants her to, was commiserating with a colleague about how she just doesn't feel happy or doesn't feel anything really anymore. She's just sort of like, we're just doing the thing, whatever that is. And it doesn't really feel exciting or enjoyable whatsoever. But I don't know if that's a function of their job at all. Well, it certainly could be. I mean, a job is a way that you spend a heck of a lot of your waking hours, right? And if you're not getting any kind of sense of fulfillment or enjoyment out of it, then it's a great idea to try to pivot and find something else that does serve that purpose for you. So let's say, let's have, let's suppose that you are on a road in your life and it feels like a road to nowhere. Surely if I'm your riding partner companion, it can't feel like that, surely. <laughs> but let's pretend, you know, uh, that you are on this road to door. What can you do to make it feel a little bit less like that? Well, I think there's two things you can do. One, figure out ways to enjoy your day-to-day -day existence, right? Things that you can look forward to on a small scale. What gets you out of bed first thing in the morning? A bowl of ice cream. Wait, okay. <laughs> that sounds pretty bad. Okay. Um, 
just, you know, little things that you can kind of sprinkle throughout your day. Sprinkles on the ice cream. Sprinkles on ice cream are pretty awesome, I got to say. But little things throughout the day that you can look forward to. Maybe it's, you know, curling up with a good book or like tackling some hobby that you're enjoying, learning a difficult piano piece, knitting a beautiful sweater. These are my examples. But things that you really look forward to and enjoy working on. Hopefully you have a job that gives you some of those things too. And then creating more long-term goals that give you something to look forward to as well. But always keeping in mind that when you get there, it's not like the be-all end-all, right? But I've made it. You're just going to set another goal. But I think that idea of always striving for something is just how humans are built. That seems to be how the vast majority of people are built anyway, that we need something to look forward to. We need something to strive for. So you're going to continue to move the goalposts, and that's okay. It's it's good, really. I think it's healthy. I think the trick is not waiting until you've reached the end zone or the goal line yes. to set the next goal. I think you kind of have to see where you want to be going and direct yourself there. And often it's okay to wander away off of the football field onto the rugby pitch. I don't know my sports metaphors here. Well, I thought what you were going to say is it's always a good idea to make sure that you don't postpone any kind of enjoyment until you've hit a particular goalpost. So like in the FI community, I think it's very common for people to just be like, I'm going to live in a miserable, terrible, frugal way until I hit this magic number and then everything will be lovely and happy and I'll dance with the fairies in the forest. So that it just doesn't exist. I think uh, our good friend Carl over at Mile High Fi gave a talk about this at Economy where he explained that there, there is no Phi-landia, there is no magical land of unicorn and rainbows. You're just going to keep living your life. I think people who are trying to lose weight often have a mindset of, well, I'll do this thing once I've lost the weight. The ice cream every day for breakfast <laughs> with uh, sprinkles? That sounds like a bad strategy no matter what your weight is in life. Anyway, I think putting things off until you've hit some magic thing that may or may never come into being is just not a good way to live. You got to enjoy the moment that you're in, balancing that with planning for goals for the future as well. Well, I think you're totally right about that is definitely not where I was trying to go. (laughs) I was just going to say that a lot of times you reach a goal and then you're unsure what to do next. And it's really important to, if you want to enjoy the journey, you should always be going somewhere and maybe figure out where you want to go before you got to the last place you arrived to. Yeah, no, I agree with that too, for Uh, sure. Okay. Um, One of the things that they talk about in this movie is this idea of dropping out of society. Yeah, they say that several times in this film. In fact, there's a scene where he walks up to a hotel clerk and introduces himself by saying, my wife and I just dropped out of society (laughs) and we'd like to book your honeymoon suite. We'll get to that. But yeah, they use this phrase so often and I just think it's a kind of interesting way to think about what it is that they are doing by quitting their jobs. Well, so we left our jobs in 2019 to go, you know, leave typical society and go live in the woods and hike and stuff. Did you feel like you were dropping out of society? I I did not feel as though we had dropped out. I definitely felt as though we had taken a complete 180 degree turn from the way that we had been living. And it was really, really fun. 
I didn't feel like we dropped out of society at all. I would never describe ourselves that way. I would certainly say that we were doing something different and traveling, but not like, oh, uh, we're different. We have dropped out of society. <laughs> uh, yeah, they do seem to have sort of this mentality that like they are special and that they've done something really unique and bold, which actually is interesting to think about in the context of through hiking, because I think some through hikers really do feel that way. And we talked about this when our friend Sherby was here and we covered the movie Wild. Some through hikers really do get a sense of entitlement because they feel like I'm kind of a badass. I'm walking across the country. People should just cater to my needs and give me whatever it is that I want. And it's really frustrating when you come across hikers that have that kind of attitude um, because you're really not that special. First of all, you're just walking every day. Second of all, like no one ever owes anybody anything, right? It's wonderful when you have strangers who are kind to you and help you out along the way, but you shouldn't expect it. So yeah, and I feel like they have kind of a tinge of that same mentality in this movie that we've done something epically cool here, guys. <laughs> We're bold. We're different. Like this is unusual. So... Albert Brooks does convince Linda that she should quit. She comes home at the end of the day. And our next clip is a fairly long one, probably the longest one we've ever done on the podcast. It's worth it, guys. But it's a really good, interesting clip where they look at their finances in a perspective they probably never have and try to evaluate what what's next for them. This is everything we have. We got a ride on the inflation train that you would not believe. In 1978, we bought this house for $150,000. If we sell our house and don't put it back into a behemoth, we have $140,000 of profit. I know, it's amazing. It's money we never were going to see because we're going to put it right back into the other house. Now, if we pull out of the new house, we'll lose $15,000 in escrow. Mm -hmm. Best $15,000 we'll ever spend, I promise you. $125,000 left. We liquidate everything. Stocks, right, your father's bond thousand the minimum minimum for both cars sixteen thousand five hundred i figured i'm being very conservative very conservative liquidation leaves us a hundred and ninety thousand dollars in cash i don't believe it now all we need is a motor home and we should get a great one because we're going to live there for the rest of our lives well, what do you think a motor home cost guess who went motor home shopping hi friends motor homes for sale forty five thousand mm -hmm. complete for a great one. Okay, now that leaves us $145,000 in cash. God. Now play devil's advocate. Can't you live 20 years on $145,000 if you're living out of a motor home and just, just eating and painting and, and writing books? And I mean, this is what we talked about when we were 19. Remember we kept saying, let's find ourselves, mm -hmm. but we didn't have a dollar, so we watched television instead. What's the matter? Why are you crying? We really can do anything we want, can't we? Oh my goodness. That's like a fire hose of numbers and information and emotions. Right? It's there's, fun. There's a lot going on in this clip. Okay, let's just go like let's do it. through all the things that we, we have in this clip. So one of the first things he says is they have $140,000 of profit from the sale of their current house, which we were, they were going to put right back into purchasing a new house. I think the purchase price of the new house was supposed to be about $450,000. So okay. it makes sense. They would have put pretty much all of that into a down payment. Now, does that make sense? We would never would have seen that money if we just put it into the house. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, I think he's right. Lifestyle creep is a real thing. 
And if you were able to get some extra leverage, right, you have some equity in your home right now and you go use it to get a bigger, nicer home that you can afford with the same kind of monthly payment or whatever. Yeah, you're going to have a a bigger house or be in a better area, have more value in that home. And when you decide to sell it, eventually you'll have access to it. But the whole time you're living there, it's tied up. It doesn't do anything for you that you can really feel or appreciate. I mean, we live in a fairly expensive area in Colorado right now. And I love where we live. It's wonderful. And we have a lot of money tied up in our home. There are other places around the country where we could live in an identical home for substantially less money. Um, And we would have access to those dollars and we could use them very productively. But we chose this lifestyle instead. And I, I think whenever you've selected that lifestyle you don't really think about it. Like it, it's just, it's a sunk cost, whether that's real or not. It sort of feels like it's just tied up and inaccessible to you. It's not a lost store of value. It's just not anything that you're going to get any appreciation or satisfaction out of. Yeah. And especially for these two who seem to kind of be lukewarm on the idea of upgrading to this massive house anyway, it does seem like they really would be wasting that money because they're not getting something out of it that's that's really important to them in building the life they want. So I think he's right. That money obviously isn't going to be gone unless the housing market takes a really huge dip, but it is something that they won't really have access to in a meaningful way for them. So I, I do think he's thinking about that the right way. He also talks about losing $15,000 in escrow. Best money you'll ever spend. He promises. So do you think that is smart if they've decided they want to back out? Is this the best way to do it? Or would they have been better off going through with the sale and then turning around and selling it quickly? Yeah, this is interesting. I like, cause I didn't even think about this. I, I totally agreed with him that pulling out of the house seemed totally reasonable. And then you pose this question and well, let's do some quick math. If the house was $450,000, uh, typical transaction cost today, I don't know what it would have been in 1985, um, just for the, the closing costs alone for uh, the realtor fees, is going to be 6%. So 6% of $450,000 is $27,000. Um, by my math, that's more than $15,000. Now, <laughs> And you should note, that's not including what we typically refer to as closing costs, that's just the realtor's fee, right? So the it, bank... That'd be like the closing cost on the on the sale side, not mm-hmm. about the closing cost on the buying side to initiate the mortgage that they were going to take on in the first place. And they're not guaranteed to sell it for the same amount that they bought it for, so they could lose money there. They might make money there. I don't really know, but it seems like a lot of unnecessary financial transaction risk and churn that, that feels quite unproductive. Uh, I think actually... Pulling the plug on that is pretty sensible, especially because he already quit his job. He lost his source of income. They right. may have been able to save some money while he was working, but if they take on this mortgage and live there for a few months and try to sell it, that's more mortgage payments that they have to make. They might as well just get out from underneath that as soon as they can. Yeah, I very much agree. The math does not lie. So I think they made a good call by just sucking it up and uh, eating that fifteen grand. Okay. He talks about liquidating everything, the stocks, your father's bonds, and he turns it all into cash. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I was kind of confused about that because 
as people who are part of a community where folks are interested in doing the very thing that they're talking about doing, cash doesn't seem to be a very popular position. Is it just because we're in 2022 and not 1985? I mean, there's actually a lot of similarities between where we sit today and where they were in time. He's been talking about the inflation train, which worked in their favor, um, but not in everybody's favor. And we also have been riding that inflation train as well. It's been really, really crazy lately. So inflation is a very real thing, and it should be something that's at the forefront of their mind. It's certainly at the forefront of my mind when I think about our finances today. And cash is the most susceptible to inflation kind of asset that you can possibly have, right? It just doesn't change in value, period. Whereas most other kinds of investments real estate, stocks, bonds, those are going to fluctuate in value depending on market forces. Carla, can I tell you about a lesson I learned when I was in high school, sophomore year? Please do. I had to take a class called free enterprise. It's like the closest thing that you could think of to like money education. Like I would way rather it have been a personal finance course in the school than this free enterprise class. Uh, You took like a semester of civics and a semester of free enterprise. It was the way it worked in Louisiana. And in the free enterprise class, my teacher said something one day that has stuck with me. I don't know why, but it has stuck with me. And she said, you can't get rich working for money. You get rich by making your money work for you. Sounds like a smart lady. Yeah, it's a pretty good uh, you know, phrase to, <laughs> to keep in your mind. Um, but your money's not really working for you if it's just in cash. Yeah, it's literally working against you, more or less, right? I mean, time is working against it, really is the more accurate way to say it. But the value of your dollars is just constantly being chipped away at by inflation if it's just sitting there in actual cash or the equivalent of it sitting in a checking account or even a lot of savings accounts that pay pennies on the dollar. So it is not a smart move for these people to be riding off into the sunset with nothing but cash to their name, that cash is going to be worth less and less and less every single day they're out there. That's right. A lot of people who are retired are thinking about how much can they withdraw from their nest egg and how to make that work. And the standard advice is the 4% rule. You can draw down your portfolio by 4% a year, and uh, that will be enough for you to uh, not take it down to zero over a 30-year period with a standard mix of stocks and bonds, but it's not from cash holdings. If you pull 4% a year out from your cash withholdings, it, it's it going to go away in 25 yeah, years. Yeah, it will last exactly 25 years, except not really, right? Because the value of that is going to be less and less over time, so you're going to need more and more of it. So 4% is not actually going to cut it. The 4% rule that we're talking about, which is pulling 4% out of wisely invested assets. I think the original study by Bill Bengen, Bengen? I never know how to say it, um, was, Billy Boy. was 50% stocks and 50% bonds. I'm fairly certain of that. 0% cash. Nowadays, most people would weight that more heavily towards stocks. But yeah, that was the initial study was pulling 4% adjusted for inflation out of your portfolio every year. And that would not fail the vast majority of the time, according to the study, over a 30-year period. Right. So these people are not giving themselves that that good of a chance at success. Okay. 
So David went motorhome shopping. Guess who went motorhome shopping? <laughs> uh, $45,000 for a motorhome. What do you think? Is this a good use of their $190,000? I mean, it feels like a heck of a lot, especially given that they're starting with a pretty low sum. So $145,000 in today's dollars would be right around $400,000. Now you've got some really frugal people out there who get by on an incredibly small amount of money each year, but that is very, very low, even for the super lean fire community to retire on $400,000 with no other income coming in the door. So that would mean they're living on, according to the 4% rule, about 20,000, no, no, I'm sorry, about $16,000 a year. What he's talking about is living on cash over a 20 year period, which is another thing that I, I don't understand. Why 20 years? Like these people are in their thirties. Are they planning on offing themselves when they get into their mid fifties? Nothing about that makes sense to me. So they're going to be cutting it really, really close. 145K divided by 20 gets you to $7,250 a year, which is the equivalent of about 20K today. So they're over the 4% rule, which again, doesn't even apply to them because their money's not invested anywhere. So they're looking at living a very, very lean existence. I would not spend such a huge percentage of it on a motorhome that was that high end, I would get a cheaper one. Yeah. I, well, I think he has this idea that life is free. Uh, you've got your motorhome. All you have to do is spend money on food and gas and a place to park that motorhome. Probably want some utilities, maybe some water, maybe a yeah. place to dump your, uh, your wastewater tank. Bet, yeah. they, bet they want some electricity. They seem so excited about the fancy microwave <laughs> in that uh, $45,000 RV. Um, not going to work unless you are plugged in. Correct. Also, there's a little TV in their RV. Also not going to work unless it's plugged in. Almost every place that you're going to go with hookups is going to charge you pretty substantially. I think you're looking at like 50 to 100 bucks a night for most RV parks that have hookups. I have no idea what it is now. I definitely don't know what it was in 1985. I know that it's not zero and it's going to certainly consume a big chunk of that $7,000 a year that they set aside to live on. Um, It's also not going to last for the rest of their lives. Like they're in their thirties. They've got another 50 years or so to go. Yeah. They just seem blithely unaware of that fact. I don't know if the plan is for them to go back to work after spending 20 years out of the workforce. That seems pretty unrealistic. Maybe they're planning to do some sort of side hustles, but this just seems like the kind of thing that they should be discussing. They are acting as though they have a sum of money that has truly set them up for life. And the reality is they're just not quite there yet. Well, maybe we're being harsh. I mean, it seems like they're interested in going to find their passions and chase their dreams. They're kind of close to a point that you might be able to call barista fire, where you could go leave your high paying corporate gig that isn't giving you any fulfillment and just be able to take a job that pays something around minimum wage or so um, and and be able to make ends meet along with your the money you've saved up. Yeah, they're totally at that point. I give them all the credit in the world for getting there. It just doesn't seem like that's what they're planning to do. They seem to be at a barista fi point acting as though they're at like a fat fire point. <laughs> that's kind of the vibe that I'm getting. But maybe they will find a passion and, you know, chase something. They're definitely at a point where they can make a huge pivot 
and give themselves a lot of time to go chase some dreams and hopefully find something that really lights them up. Well, he does say that instead of finding themselves, they didn't have any money, so they sat around and watched TV. How does it make you feel, uh, co-host of Pennies and Popcorn? (laughs) A little bit called out. Um, Yeah, I, I think it is such an interesting topic, too, to discuss, right, the effect that TV has on so many people's lives, including ours. We obviously host a podcast about television and movies, and we watch a decent amount of TV and movies. I definitely would not, not have watched Lost in America if we weren't doing this podcast. <laughs> That's fair. We probably would have watched more House of Dragons recently. Uh, we're Game of Thrones people. Sorry, guys, if that upsets you. Uh, anyway, I think TV can be a healthy part of life. I mean, let's face it. We are in a golden age of TV. There is really good stuff on television right now, right? It's not like the sort of dinky sitcoms that you just turned on to have some kind of noise in the house of maybe 30 years ago. It's like gripping, really good, can't tear yourself away from it TV. And I do think our lives would be actually less rich if we didn't have some of these really, really great shows and movies in our lives. So this summer, Carla and I got the chance to give a small talk at at a financial independence conference called Camp Fi. Total blast. If you're interested, you should definitely go check it out. It was was a ton of time. Yeah. A ton of fun. Yeah. But we gave a talk about some of the things that we see on TV and movies as it relates to money. And we were a little bit nervous that in the, this group of folks who was trying to, I don't know, drop out of society or something (laughs) analogous to that, uh, how they would feel about the amount of time we spend taking in that form of entertainment. And I think we were a little bit, a little bit nervous, but Upon reflection, I don't think we should feel ashamed. You're right. It is a great time to be watching that kind of content. It's really good stuff. And I think we've done a good job of setting up our lives to where it's not this mindless thing droning on in the background with all kinds of commercials and, and that sort of thing and where we just can't live our life without it on. Uh, we intentionally choose to go watch a program and go spend some time entertaining ourselves that way. But it doesn't eat up our life in a way that makes me feel like we're unable to go do any of the other things and we can't pry ourselves away from uh, that that next episode of the show we're watching or the rerun of that show we've seen a bunch of times because there's nothing better on TV that time of day or night. Yeah, I think it's about balance and it's probably different for everybody. But I do think it can have a place in a healthy, happy, fulfilled life. But it can be hard. And I think the more hours you work, the harder it is to fit in fulfilling things and TV. But it can be done. It can That balance can be struck. Or maybe we just tell ourselves that because we, we do it. I think but. because we don't have kids, that's one fewer thing on our plate <laughs> than is on a lot of other people's plates. Yeah, that's true. And so that, that gives us a little bit more time to, to goof around. Yeah. Well, so let's touch on this very last comment that we hear in the clip where the character of Linda is actually moved to tears by all of this. And she says, we really can't do anything we want, can't we? I just thought that was such a nice moment. And it's, uh, again, a little bit misguided because they, they do have some limitations on what they can realistically do with their lives. But they do have an incredible amount of freedom and flexibility that they have given themselves by, you know, saving, I guess, mostly for them, it came through the inflation on the house. But nevertheless, they're in a really, really fortunate position. And they do have a huge amount of freedom. 
So I think it's a nice moment where they're both really realizing that. And it's, it feels a little bit reminiscent of how I felt when I first discovered financial independence and realized we had a lot of flexibility in life. Yeah, I think there's a lot of power in understanding the options that are available to you when you've never stepped back to think about them. Um, it's shockingly eye-opening for a lot of folks. And I think it's, it's not surprising that she was a little bit moved to tears over it. If that didn't move you to tears, though, this next part might. <laughs> so David and Linda, as they drop out of society, the first thing they want to do is go renew their wedding vows in Las Vegas. So they drive to Vegas. They decide not to stay in the RV in the first night and go get a hotel room. This is where they ask for the honeymoon suite because, you know, they've dropped out of society and are special <laughs> and need something quite fancy. The honeymoon suite, by the way, is totally terrible. It, um, it just has these weird heart-shaped beds that are, they look terrible. They're, and a heart-shaped shower. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> we didn't actually see the shower. It was just kind of told to us. Um, but they're going to get up early and the next scene happens after, uh, David wakes up at six in the morning when the alarm goes off and he realizes that Linda is not in the room and he goes down and wanders down to the casino floor to find her. What happened? Well, at 2.30 this morning, this man said I was up $100,000. $100,000? Where the hell did you start gambling that kind of money? No, but it was more chips than I've ever seen in my whole life. They were all over the place. You wouldn't have believed it. Well, you had no chips when I came downstairs. No, but I, I can get them back. Stop it. Now, the cash that we had with us in the room, you took that? Yes. You cast your personal checks? Yes. You didn't touch the traveler's checks? Yes. No. Yes. The core of the nest egg. Yeah. How much is left in the nest egg? Nothing. Well, g give or take a thousand. Give or take a thousand. Yeah. Oh, God. I Sweetheart, can't listen. Listen. It's like a Twilight Zone. No. <laughs> Plus or minus a grand. No big deal. Okay, so uh, he says it's like a Twilight Zone. There actually was a Twilight Zone episode where um, the husband was the one who gambled away all their money. It's called the fever, which feels appropriate, right? The gambling fever. Dude, uh, these gambling numbers are ridiculous. Okay. Lay it on me. Let me have So it. I don't know what time they went to bed. I don't know what time she snuck out of the room. I don't know what time she went down to the casino floor. Um. She was up $100,000. Like, what do we think she was betting with to start? It sort of seems like her strategy was to go, um, I don't know, like win it back after she lost it all. So she surely didn't sit down with like $10,000 at the table in the first place. Maybe she sat down with a few hundred, a thousand. But even if she did sit down with $10,000, she turned it into $100,000. It's really difficult to do that. It's like to multiply your money by a factor of 10 at the tables. Like, what? Well, she's playing roulette. That's the only thing we see her playing, which I get that pays, what, like 36 to 1 or 38 to 1 or something? 36 to 1 if you're betting on a single number. But like most casino, like there's going to be bet, there's going to be table limits. The place she was at didn't seem like it was quite that fancy. It That's also looked true. like the dollar amount she was playing with was very, fairly low. The pit boss seemed like he knew her as well. So I don't, I have no idea what happened <laughs> for her to both get up ten, a hundred thousand dollars and down 
$200,000 when she was up, right? Yeah, yeah. $245,000, $44,000. That's right. Uh, Heck, it was a conservative evaluation of what they would get on the sale of their cars. So she probably had even more than that. (laughs) That's true. Yeah, a lot, a lot of money down the drain there. So gambling addictions are a real thing, right? People do this. In fact, I also saw that Larry David, the guy behind Seinfeld, he said that he saw this movie and it really resonated with him because he and his wife had gone to Vegas and blown a lot of their money. And that's one of the reasons that he was like really working hard to make Seinfeld the success that it became because he had to do something because their nest egg was just totally gone. That's wild. <laughs> so here's what I thought about when I heard this clip and I saw it the first time you spent the cash cast your personal checks. What about the core of the nest egg, the traveler's checks? And I scratched my head. I mean, first of all, we already, we already mentioned how dumb it is that they had everything in cash or cash equivalent. But then it really surprised me. They decided to use traveler's checks for what, like the rest of their life? Is that their plan here for the next 20 years? They had everything in traveler's checks. And I just thought that was the dumbest thing I'd ever heard. But then I kind of looked into it. Like, this is 1985. I thought for sure, why don't they put their money in, in uh, Chase or uh, before was, uh, there's Bank One that merged with Chase or Bank of America or Wells Fargo or, or any of the major national banks. And it turns out in 1985, that really wasn't even an option for you. They, they just passed some banking laws that made that a more possible thing for people. And it wasn't until the mid to late 80s that there started to be this gobbling up and consolidation of all of these smaller banks into the institutions that we know today. And so traveler checks, traveler's checks were actually a reasonable, secure way to carry your money. Um, if they got lost or stolen, you could get them canceled and replaced. Uh, it, it was a way to sort of do better than have cash. But if you had a bank in California and you decided to drive out to North Dakota you may not be able to get access to your money very easily. Traveler's checks did the job. So I thought that was fascinating. That is a very interesting tidbit. Can I just reiterate how insane it is for them to have all that money in cash in any form, even if it's a secure form? So we ran the numbers on this. If they had invested all $145,000 in 1985 in the S&P 500, today that would be like almost $3.3 million dollars. Now they needed to live off of it. So if they had been withdrawing about 4% every year, they would still have like $840,000. So they would have been able to live for the past like 36 years, plus they would have 840,000 to their name today. So just one more time for the folks in the back, do not keep your money in cash. That is a losing proposition in every scenario. It's just not a good idea. All right, Carla. Of the two of us, one of us gambles a little more than the other, and that one is me. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think we're at serious risk of me going to a casino and blowing anywhere near this amount of money, but let's pretend it happened. What is the appropriate response? Oh, I just, I cannot even fathom it. It makes my heart hurt so much to think about it. Like we did this, we built our nest egg together as a team and we both worked our asses off to do that. Well, yeah, but I could have like a couple hours of entertainment. <laughs> oh, I just, I can't imagine what I would do. That would be, 
I think it'd be worse than you cheating on me. Like it would just be oh, way worse. Ultimate, way worse. ultimate breach of trust that I can possibly imagine. Just take like all our hopes and dreams for the future, all of our past hard work and investing and like the research to do the investing, like you just poop all over it. And oh. I would just be heartsick. I think murder-suicide is the right approach. <laughs> I mean, that's a little extreme. I don't know. I would try to find some way to forgive you, but it would be... Oh, it's unforgivable. Big, big breach of trust. Like a really epic breach of trust. I would watch this Jeffrey Dahmer series and learn a little <laughs> bit more about what kind of punishing things I should be doing. Oh, boy. I mean, what would you do if I did that to oh, you? Oh, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, that's that's it. <laughs> it's a Jeffrey Dahmer approach. Yeah. All right. Well, folks, if... Long-term, uh, like, vicious punishment. If anything happens to me, you heard it here on Pennies and Popcorn. That's right. Come back and listen to this, police it's, officers. <laughs> no, I, like, I, I don't know how to respond. I mean, I don't think we would ever talk again. I think it'd be over. Like, it's just, <laughs> just such a betrayal. Yeah, I can't imagine it. Well, let's just not do that to each other. How about that? Deal? Uh, like 80% deal. Okay. 85%. You're me a little nervous here. Um, well, I do think the right response though is for you to sort of, um, they're down to a thousand dollars. 800. Well, she said give or take. Right? No, we learned later it's 800. Okay. They're down <laughs> to $800. They have this big RV that they just bought for $45,000. They were planning on dropping out of society it's probably time to drop back in. <laughs> yeah. um, but I don't think I would keep that RV for another moment. I would drive it to somewhere where I thought I could sell it if I didn't think Las Vegas was the right place to do that, whether that's back to the LA area, go down to Phoenix. I don't know. I would take it somewhere nearby where I felt like I could get the best possible value for it and exchange it for like a, a used car that's worth, I don't know, 10% of the value of the RV yeah. and try to land on my feet because while they do have a home in that motor home, like we said, if you don't plug it in somewhere, it's not going to be all that great. Not a very comfy home. That's not really what they try to do though. Yeah, it does not uh, go well. So let's listen to Albert Brooks's character's reaction as he sort of has a blow up after digesting for a little bit what has happened oh god i guess this was my fault that's what i'm thinking maybe i just didn't explain the nest egg well enough if you had understood you know it's a very sacred thing the nest egg and if you had understood the nest egg principle as we will now call it in the first of many lectures that you will have to get because if we are to ever acquire another nest egg we both have to understand what it means the egg is a protector like a god and we sit under the nest egg and we are protected by it Without it, no protection. Want me to go on? It pours rain. Hey, the rain drops on the egg and falls off the side. Without the egg, wet, it's over. Wet, it's over. So, Carla, I read <laughs> that uh, the guy who directed the movie Drive, I think it is, um, he cast Albert Brooks in that movie because he saw him in this movie and he saw his ability to bottle up some rage. And he just thought... That is a person who will murder someone someday. <laughs> oh, no. And he's like, I'm going to write it into my movie and he's going to be the perfect character to play it or perfect actor to play the character. Well, there you go. Yeah, he definitely holds in the rage for a while. He's kind of like eerie calm. He's playing it cool. Yeah, yeah. he's like eerily calm for a bit. And then 
all of a sudden the floodgates just open and he just lets her have it. So, yeah. What do you think about his take on the nest egg being the protector in life? It's like a god, Carla. <laughs> um, yeah, I think he's right. Maybe, maybe it's a bit of exaggeration, but she certainly did not understand the nest egg concept and maybe it was his fault for not explaining it very well. He needed a mansplain it to her. Okay. That part I do feel is very <laughs> condescending and annoying. Well, she did go blow it. Yeah, she did. She did. But I feel like she has a sickness, right? Like she, and he actually has this line at some point in this rant that we're not playing you the whole thing, but he's like, why didn't you tell me you were this diseased gambling addict? This is true. Yeah. I mean, that part feels like the most accurate thing to me. If you know you have this weakness in life, one, don't go to Vegas. Two, if you go to Vegas, like make sure you're together at all times and like chain her to the bed. Yeah. Don't tell her the safe safe combination where you have the traveler's checks. Correct. Uh, But I think he's right about the nest egg being this hugely important thing to them. It is a super source of protection. It gives you so much ability to ward off most anything, right? You can, what are the numbers in America today? Like half of the country would be in a state of severe financial stress. They, they couldn't afford a four or $500 financial shock that happens to them. Yeah, that's true. So a nest egg like this is certainly there to protect you in the event of all kinds of surprises. It gives them the chance to pick up and move somewhere else across the country to go chase and explore their dreams, to, to do what they want to do and not feel compelled to make money in a job that wasn't making them particularly happy. It's unfortunate that those were the jobs that they found themselves in at the time, but it is a super powerful thing that you shouldn't underestimate the value of. I don't mean to suggest that by having an nest egg, your life will be lovely and wonderful because clearly it wasn't. Yeah, but money makes a lot of problems a lot easier. It doesn't solve all problems. That's very true, but it does solve a good bit of them. So it is a very powerful tool to have in your arsenal and they are much more vulnerable in life without it. There's no question about that. So I do think he's right. I also think it's great if you can be very self-reliant in life because everything's a balance, right? If you are a plumber, an electrician, and a carpenter, you probably need to have less money saved up because you can solve a heck of a lot of things that will go wrong in your house all on your own without having to call anybody. If you can mend your own clothes, if you can cook your own meals, the more skills that you have in life, the less money you need to pay other people to do them. So it's great if you can balance skills with also having money to pay other folks to do things for you, but having just $800 to your name is definitely kind of a scary place to be in life because a lot of things can come at you that you may not have the ability to handle. And no matter how self-reliant you are, especially here in America, we're all vulnerable to things like medical disasters, right? Like stuff happens. So I agree with him is the bottom line. She has removed their protective bubble in life. Well, so let's pretend that I went on a gambling spree, blew it all, you found it in your heart to forgive me, or, you know, we just lost our money because somehow it got got stolen and we no longer have anything that resembles a nest egg. You used to have a job that, you know, paid you particularly well. You left it and are doing something different with your life now. What What would you do if our nest egg just poof, up and evaporated? 
I would definitely go find work that paid me way, way more than I'm making now. Knitting isn't paying the bills, Carla? It does not. Yeah, it does not get it done. So I, yeah, I would go on a serious job hunt. We might downsize our house. We might move closer to like a big city where I could more easily have access to the kind of work that would pay me a lot more. So yeah, we would have to make some pretty big shifts and kind of get ourselves back to the point where we felt comfortable having another giant umbrella over our heads. Yeah, I I think the challenge that exists here is if you lose it all, you're probably not very far behind where the average American is. Um, Unless you're, heck, even if you're retired, right? Even if you're like 65, 70 years old, you're not particularly far behind a lot of folks out there and people are able to make ends meet. So you shouldn't despair too badly. You can certainly rebuild things and get it back to a level of some sense of satisfaction. It may not be where you thought you were going to be beforehand. Um, I think what you have to be careful doing is going back to what you were doing before if you felt like you were on the road to nowhere, right? What is the point of going back on that road to nowhere just to go rebuild that nest egg? That sounds like a miserable existence. Yeah, I think that's very true. It's So many folks can find things to do that will pay their bills in a way that makes them happy. So I think chasing that is always a good thing to do. It's a better thing to do when you've got some capital under your belt though, right? (laughs) It's a little bit easier. Yeah, because you don't know for sure what you're going to love and what you're not once you really get into it. And so giving yourself the freedom to kind of flit about and try different things, it's a lot easier when you've got got some cash in your, or investments, I should say, (laughs) under your belt. So what David and Linda decide to do is he was offered a job in New York. He wasn't offered this promotion that he thought he was going to get. He was told that he was being transferred effectively to work on some huge account. It was a prestigious opportunity they were giving him, though not the opportunity he specifically wanted. They had stopped in Arizona and realized they had no money, tried to find jobs, realized that their skill set was not going to pay them what they were looking for there. And the right approach was to go back to his old employer and beg for forgiveness and drive to New York. So they take their $800 that they have and drive 2,600, 2,800 miles across the country. 2,600 miles from giant, yep. giant RV. They it's take a, a weird footer. route. Yeah. They, they took a weird route. They went through like South Carolina and stuff. I don't know why they went that far South, but they did. Um, and he shows up there begging for his job with a guy who doesn't seem that excited to work with him. <laughs> I thought it was kind of crazy. Um, one of the things I just keep thinking about is he decided to quit or he decided to go out in a blaze of glory, effectively quitting when they told him he was getting transferred to New York instead of getting the promotion he wanted. And I don't get why he didn't try to work out other alternatives in the LA area. Like, I don't know, say this transfer and this opportunity to work on this huge account seems interesting but it's not right for me and my family, and I'd like to stay here. Are there other accounts that I can serve in the area with you? If not, I don't know, LA seems like a place where there are other employment options besides just the one advertising firm he was working for. That's very true. Although I will say I do feel like 
maybe this is just purely coming from having watched the show Mad Men, but I feel like there's more advertising opportunities in New York. That's like kind of the heart of advertising. But that could be, I could be way off base there. I don't really know. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure there are more, but I thought it was interesting that he decided, one, to just spend all his money going to New York and hoping that they would take him back. Yeah, so we did the math on this, and the price of gas in 1985 was around $1.12 a gallon, and it's 2,600 miles. We thought they could maybe be getting eight miles to the gallon. Probably not that good. On their giant uh, RV. So... If assuming all those assumptions are correct, that would have cost them three hundred and sixty-four dollars in gas to get across the country like that. Yeah, and they're gonna have to camp places and get power and water and everything. And yeah, it's insane. It's ridiculous. There's yeah. no way. It doesn't yeah. make any sense. Um, I think you probably would have been better to just head back to LA, see if you could figure it out there. It would have been a lot cheaper, a lot less in gas. Yeah, these are these are good questions. In the end, I think they make the right call going back to more lucrative jobs to try to build up another nest egg. There is kind of an epilogue at the end of the movie where they note that he does get his job back, but he takes a 31% pay cut. So that's <laughs> less than fun. She finds another job, I think, working at Bloomingdale's in New York, and they get pregnant. So they have their first child on the way, which probably... Uh, changes the financial future for them well hopefully they no longer feel like they're on a road to nowhere yeah yeah one would hope but i don't know do they end up happy in life it's a it's a question mark we don't get to see how things turn out for david and linda but i hope that they found some fulfillment in life and found a way to make things fun i think he probably snaps and murders her eventually (laughs) Uh, it would be a constant source of tension man So everybody out there, please do not go blow all of your life savings without consulting your spouse first. Yeah, seems like a bad plan. Very bad plan. All right, everybody. Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode. If you haven't seen this movie, go check it out. It is really funny. We just spoiled the plot for you. But I did see it is listed on the American Film Institute's top 100 funniest films of all time. Yeah, it's a good comedy. Yeah, go check it out. You can see uh, Julie Haggerty go crazy and lose it all in Vegas. It's, it's pretty entertaining. Yeah. All right, guys. We hope everybody has a great week, and we'll catch you next time. Thanks. Take care.